Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 200 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. What a ride it's been. To celebrate our 200th episode, I queried our listeners on our Facebook group for some ideas. The idea that really resonated for me was to discuss the history of landscape photography. So I invited two of the wisest photographers I could think of for a conversation about that and the relevance that it has on the environment we find ourselves in today. I was so thankful to be able to get Guy Tal and Michael Gordon to join me for this conversation. Guy and Michael teach very unique workshops together and have for over a decade. I consider both of them to be two of the most thoughtful and influential leaders in contemporary landscape photography. So buckle your seatbelts and get ready for a good one. Make sure you listen all the way to the end to learn about a huge discount code from Guy Tao. Well, before we get started with the show, I have a really exciting announcement. Many listeners have heard my rants over the years about the use of digital manipulation in landscape photography. Well, now I've decided to put my money where my mouth is. I have partnered with Tim Parkin, Rajas Jothis Warren, and Alex Nail to develop a new landscape photography competition which aims to reward photographers who choose to respect the constraints of the natural world. One of landscape photography's unique features is its ability to clearly represent the visual experience of the world. The deep connection between the photograph and the scene that it conveys has shown the world the beauty of nature, helped convince politicians to create our national parks, shown people their effect on natural habitats, and broadened the horizons of nearly every human on Earth. But now we live in a world where there are blurred lines between these two aspects of photographic art. Our social media feeds show both approaches side by side with little to differentiate them. This current status quo is somewhat inevitable and understandable. However, when competitions do not make any distinction between the two, we are faced with a conundrum. Photographers who try to work within the boundaries of the landscape that they actually experienced find it very difficult to compete with photographs that depart from these constraints. The competitions we see online sometimes reward the technical skills of post-processing, compositing, and graphic design over the challenges of working within the limits of the real world. How rarely can a portrayal of a real scene compete with these extraordinary techniques? We aim to create a competition where the field skills of the photographer are celebrated, where the post-processing respects the inherent truth of the scene experienced, and photography literate viewers would not feel deceived by the end result had they had a chance to see the original scene themselves. A diverse and highly respected panel of judges have honored us by agreeing to be part of this unique effort. The panel represents some of the most experienced and respected figures in landscape photography today, including Joe Cornish, William Neal, Sarah Marino, Alistair Ben, Alex Noriega, Adam Gibbs, and Stephen Forster. We are also excited to implement some judging procedures which we hope will overcome some of the common complaints and issues that we see in most other competitions available today. If this sort of thing interests you, please head over to naturallandscapeawards.com to learn more. We will be open for entries on June 1st and you can subscribe to our mailing list to receive early bird discounts and updates. Okay, let's get to the show. Uh, Guy Tal and Michael Gordon, thank you so much for joining me on this unique version of the podcast where we're celebrating episode 200 and trying it on Zoom for the first time. Thank you, Matt. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And congratulations on 200. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Obviously, uh, you've been a bit, huge part of that guy. So thank you for coming onto the show so many times now. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. congratulations, Matt. I no appreciate it. A lot of commitment and work to, to get there. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, we're here to talk about the history of landscape photography, which can take us in a lot of different interesting directions. But before we do that, I thought it would be really great to give you guys the opportunity to introduce yourselves for those poor, unfortunate people that have not been familiarized with you or your work. So let's start with Guy. Uh, my name is Guy Tal. I've been a photographer for about 30 years now, more than half of it uh, professionally, I guess. I'm now full-time professional. Uh, I live in Utah. I photograph mostly within about 100 miles of my house. I really love this desert that I live in. I sometimes uh, visit the Mojave too, spend some time with Michael. I also write. I have a couple of books out. I write columns for a couple of magazines. Uh, I guess that about sums it up. Cool. And go ahead, Michael. I'm Michael Gordon. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you. Um, I'm also a photographer of about 30 years. I specialize in California deserts. Um, my mileage radius is a little bit larger than Guy's, but uh, California is where all my work is. Guy and I have been teaching together now for about 17 years. And uh, for those who don't know, the reason why we're on the program together is because we do workshops together. And Guy and I have been friends for a couple of decades now. So can you guys complete each other's thoughts? Don't want to. Yeah, yeah it's, it's too creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to interject a little bit of humor there because, you know, we're going to be talking about a pretty heavy subject uh, in, in the history here. So got to keep it light as much as we can, which I think is the only reason we invited you, Michael, right? That's what, I'm, that's what I told Guy right now. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I've, I've, I've been admiring both of your, your guys' photography for a long time and feel very honored to have you guys here. So I am the learner here. So. Uh, well, let's just dive right in. I would love maybe to just start out with a, a brief overview of the evolution um, of landscape photography over history. And I know that could take us all kinds of directions, but um, I'd love to hear your take on it. And Kai, if you want to just kick us off, that'd be great. Uh, sure. Well, actually, uh, landscape photography as a form of art is a fairly recent thing. I want to go a little bit back to the history of photography as a form of art, which uh, is, uh, you know, people talk about the invention of photography being around the mid 1820s but really what happened around the mid 1820s is not so much the camera or the lenses which were already in existence but the, pro the chemical process of actually fixing impressions of light on a sensitized surface sensitization is the process of making something light sensitive uh, so that happened around the mid 1820s uh, it actually happened simultaneously in multiple places in France and in England for sure Nisiphornieps uh, in France and uh, Fox Talbot in, uh, in England. They created different processes. Uh, then Louis Daguerre kind of made this very, very famous. He was uh, Niepce's partner and he took over the business after Niepce passed away. Uh, and it became extremely popular primarily as a form of making portraits because at the time people that wanted portraits, they were usually very wealthy people and they commissioned painters uh, to, to paint their likenesses. And then the Daguerreotype made that 
comparatively a lot easier and a lot less expensive. So that uh, made the daguerreotypes very, very popular. There were a few people that actually used the daguerreotypes to uh, photograph landscapes. There's some records, but it was it was a very, very small minority. Uh, and then, you know, the chemistry, the, the technicalities of photography continued to improve into wet plate and then into dry plate, then into film. And finally, as we know today with, uh, with the digital technology. So really the technology of art has evolved very, very quickly and uh, much faster than practically any other art, I would say. But uh, <clears throat> what, what hasn't evolved as fast is the artistic merits of photography. Um, and uh, photography drew a lot of criticism from artists from day one. Pretty much when photography was invented, the, the predominant style in art was uh, either romanticism or realism. And that relied very heavily on the skill of the artist to render very, very accurate, very realistic, uh, sometimes glorified, you know, epic renditions. Uh, and then came photography, which at least in principle started the promise of here's a machine or a process that can do that potentially better than a human being could do it. Uh, and that really rubbed some uh, artists the wrong way. Um, and actually, if you don't mind, I actually uh, uh, quoted here something. There's a, there was a, a critic at the time. His name, was, his name was Charles Baudelaire. He was a poet and an art critic. And he wrote this scathing letter in 1859. Uh, those that know the history of art know that uh, at the time, the hub for art was uh, the Paris Salon. It was a, an exhibition where the creme de la creme of artists would present their work. To make it to the salon was considered a big deal. Uh, and he wrote this for the Salon of 1859. So I'm going to read from that. He writes, in matters of painting and sculpture, the present day credo of the sophisticated above all is this. I believe in nature. I believe only in nature. I believe that art is and cannot be other than exact reproduction of nature. Thus, an industry that could give us the result identical to nature would be the absolute art. And then he says, a revengeful God has given ear to the prayers of the multitude and Daguerre was his Messiah. And now the faithful says to himself, since photography gives us every guarantee of exactitude that we could desire, they really believe that, the mad fools, then photography and art are the same thing. And finally, I mean, he goes on to berate photography and pretty much saying it's meant to kill art because it, if really art is all about reproducing realistic appearances of nature, then there's not going to be any need for painters at some point. Uh, and you can hear echoes of that also in the words of, uh, you know, other artists uh, and Gauguin and uh, Pissarro and some of the art uh, other artists that uh, mocked photography. Uh, so that was about where it started. So pretty much from day one, photography was the, uh, the butt of, uh, of jokes and criticism from painters primarily. Uh, and as you might know, after realism in art uh, started another movement called Impressionism. And part of the reason that Impressionism started is artists uh, sat down and thought, you know, if photography can soon do this better than we can, I mean, that wasn't the, the only reason, but that was part of the reason, then we need to start doing something else in art. Uh, and that's where the idea started that art, or not started, but really evolved, that art really should be about personal expression and not necessarily about realistic imitations of nature. Uh, and the Impressionist also were met with a lot of mockery from the art world, but as we all know today, uh, that really didn't go anywhere. They were shunned from the salons of the time. Uh, then they started their own salons. Uh, and then Impressionistic art uh, was born. And Impressionistic art really focused around qualities of uh, natural light and color. So they did away with details, with realistic details, but they kept the, the natural appearance of colors. Uh, beyond that uh, came the post-Impressionists. Think of people like Paul Cezanne, for example. And they said, 
you know what? We don't even need to be uh, infidelity to nature and colors. We can use whatever color we need to express ourselves because art is really about personal expression. Uh, and beyond that, you know, where we are today, then came abstract art and then what is today the, the postmodern era, which is really more about philosophy. If you look at postmodern pieces, it would look like they don't have much in common, but the thing that they have in common is that it doesn't matter what the medium is, it doesn't matter what the style is, it doesn't matter what the scale is, it doesn't matter what the subject is, the only thing that matters is the effect of the art, the idea that it's intended to represent. And as you can imagine, photography kind of uh, dropped off that scale, you know, going from realism, which was very precise reproductions of natural looking things, all the way to today when art is already saying, you know, the actual medium, the actual quality, the actual recognition of things in the work of art are not important at all. It's all about the idea behind the art. Photography kind of got stuck in that romantic era of uh, epic landscapes and realistic renditions. And I think for a lot of photographers that uh, that was a problem. Uh, perhaps, I mean, I'm going to skip some names in the in the middle, but two two photographers in particular kind of took the, the mantle of promoting photography's art maybe more than others. And those were Alfred Stieglitz in the US and Henry Peach Robinson in the UK. Uh, so in the UK, there was the Royal Photographic Society, which is the oldest photographic society in the world. Henry Peach Robinson was one of their vice presidents. Uh, and he was really upset that the society was really focused on technique and uh, technical issues to, to technical aspects of photography and didn't really give any consideration to art. And he ended up uh, leaving the society, starting an organization called uh, the Brotherhood of the Linked Ring uh, that was primarily focused about creating art and photography. And they worked in a pictorialist style, which is a style that meant to mimic effects of uh, painting. Alfred Stieglitz did the same thing in the US a few years later. He started uh, a group called the Photo Secession. My, my uh, knowledge is, is more in, in the US part where Alfred Stieglitz ended up being sort of the great grandfather of all of us, of all photographic artists, you know, whether it's landscape or something else. Because what he did is he was a mentor to a lot of other photographers. Uh, we think about people like Paul Strand and Edward Weston and Ansel Adams and Minor White. All of them have met with Stieglitz and, and admired him. And he helped them start their own journeys in photography. Uh, and Stieglitz created this gallery in New York City. It was originally called the Little Gallery of the Photo Secession. Then it turned the name changed to 291, which was the street address that he was on. And he displayed photographs alongside uh, paintings by Picasso and Cezanne and sculptures by Rodin and uh, uh, Brancusi. Uh, so he really considered photography to be on par as a medium for art. And he tried to promote it. And he founded a magazine called Camera Work. He wrote a lot about photography. He was a tireless promoter for photography as art. And really everything that we see today, the discussions of photography as a form of art, uh, kind of derived out of that. So Stieglitz was the, the giant of, uh, of art, at least when it came to American photography. I've been babbling a lot now, but hopefully <laughs> that gives you a good overview of uh, how we got to where we are. Yeah, I think I thought it was really interesting, too, that uh, right around that time is when Ansel and his crew created the Group F64, which was kind of in response to uh, that style of photography. And I, I found that 
evolution to be really interesting as well because it's almost like they came full circle <laughs> you know actually there's a bit of a misconception there because the whole concept of straight photography uh, started around the early 1900s so the term itself uh, was from an article that was published in camera work in Stiglitz's magazine in 1904 Ansel Adams was two years old in 1904 <laughs> right so uh, yeah so Stieglitz and Strand uh, and some of these guys promoted the idea of straight photography that the idea that you know pictorialism had to go away because photography shouldn't try to look like other media it should look like photographs so they promoted that idea for about 20 years and that's what inspired ultimately uh, Edward Weston and then Ansel Adams to start uh, F64 and it kind of became known as the West Coast uh, aesthetic even though it really wasn't it started about 20 years earlier with uh, with Stieglitz. Well thank you professor. <laughs> <laughs> Michael would you add anything onto that and from your perspective? I'd say thank you very much, Guy. <laughs> um, no, about, I think the Guy covered it very well. Um, and that's why I'd rather just provide the humor aspect. <laughs> uh, about the only thing I can add is if you look at the first uh, 10, 15 years of Ansel's work, you can see his uh, abrupt transition from Impressionism to straight photography. Uh, he was using soft focus lenses, at gaining that uh, Impressionistic pictorial look for 10, 15 years. And then there was that abrupt switch when it went you know, to clean, sharp, straight photographs. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think Guy nailed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <Thank> definitely. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, maybe that's a great way to transition into kind of more of the meat of what we're going to talk about here. And that's kind of, you know, thinking about the modern zeitgeist of landscape photography and reflecting back on all of what Guy just said and how that translates into what we're experiencing today. Um, so I'll just kick us off with another question, which is, uh, you know, what, what do you think landscape photographers today can gain by studying that history of landscape photography? Should I get? Go for it. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, well, first of all, to me, I just think it's extremely interesting. For me, that's a medium that I'm passionate about, and I do certain things a certain way, and it's interesting for me to know how I got to this point, how things got to be what they are. Uh, but also, when you look at some of the some of the characters in that history, you know, I mentioned Stieglitz or Edward Weston. They were fascinating people. If you read the, uh, the day books of Edward Weston, I mean, that's just that's better bedtime reading the, than most uh, than most contemporary novels, and uh, probably has a lot more sex in it too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, he was just a very interesting and adventurous person. Uh, I can add some more anecdotes about it. So for me, first of all, it's it's good to it's good to know how we got to to be where we are because it's interesting. The other thing is, uh, you know, if if you're uh, primarily a documentary photographer or aspire to be a documentary photography, then yeah, knowing the history is not gonna add much to you if you just want to you know go to pretty places or find interesting things and make pretty and interesting photographs of those things and yeah that's pretty much you know is what it is that there's not much that history can add to it if anything we can do it better today than we ever could without even knowing much but if you want to be an artist it, one of the criteria for art 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 is an expression of creativity and skill and the skill part in photography has never you know compared to other arts has never required much from from the artist but the creative part of photography is on par with just about any other medium and creativity practically any major creative accomplishment relies on history. It's either a combination of existing ideas or an expanding on existing ideas or contradicting existing ideas. So 
art or the creative aspect of art is almost always an expansion of what has already been done before. And if you don't know what that is, then yeah, you might reinvent the wheels, you might create things that are aesthetically pleasing, that are popular, but you are not likely to create, you know, what researchers call big C creative, uh, as opposed to little C creative, which is, you know, finding low solutions to low problem, but big C creative, you know, impressionism was big C creativity. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, if, if you aspire to be that kind of artist, uh, if you aspire to creative challenges, then the more you know, the, the bigger your baseline, the, the bigger your, your uh, pool of knowledge and facts, uh, the more you have to draw on in coming up with creative ideas. Um, so yeah, that, that's, the, that's how art evolves. Art evolves by building on what's been done before or destroying what's been done before. But that part of what's been done before, you, you can't avoid it. Yeah, it's interesting. I was uh, recently on another podcast that was all about fine art. It had nothing to do with photography other than photography being an art form. And I, I spent a good 20 minutes just kind of trying to lay out the, the use case that photography is art. Uh, but I, I can co totally appreciate why other art artists and other types of art forms kind of look down on photography a little bit, especially landscape photography, just because predominantly what we see out there in terms of what's popular is you know, these grand um, photographs of places we've all seen before or, or images that everyone has already seen in the past. Um, typically, that's what becomes popular anyway. And so I can appreciate why the general public or other artists might not see it as art, although I think that's just um, people haven't really dug very deep in terms of appreciating what is actually out there. And, and I would say that as photographers, we should not be indignant about it because a lot of it is self-inflicted. There is a very, very serious deficit of creativity in photography, especially in landscape photography. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. What, uh, what is driving that deficit? Uh, well, for starters, it's, it's easy, you know, people grow into it, they, they see what they see, this is what they see today on uh, whether it's social media or anywhere else, and for them, this is what photography is, it looks like fun, they go to pretty places, they see pretty things, they get to hang out with cool people, uh, and that's what it's all about, and for a lot of people, that's how it starts, which is fine, but uh, I, I don't think... If you aspire to be an artist, then you should aspire to get past that phase. You should aspire to get to a point where uh, your work is a creative and originality is a component of creativity um, and expressive. Being expressive means that your work communicates more than just appearances of things. It communicates something of yourself. And for that, there's a lot of science of how do you communicate certain emotions, certain ideas. Uh, and uh, a lot of it is also having these ideas that are worth expressing. So, you know, if all you do is go out on weekends to pretty places and photograph them, odds are you don't really have anything that's even worth expressing other than I've been to this pretty place and I saw this pretty thing. And again, I'm not saying that this is, this is not a, a qualitative statement. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it seems like, hey, this is the most popular hobby that is. Uh, so we definitely see a lot of that because that's where most people start and do for most of their, uh, most of their photographic journey. Uh, but the unfortunate part of it is a lot of people become successful and popular at it and they become unmotivated to push their envelope beyond that. And that's why we don't see a lot of very creative, expressive art in photography. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Uh, to add on to what Guy just said there, I know it's not the topic of the uh, 
of the podcast, but obviously, or at least I believe without question, social media plays a huge part in how willing people are to push themselves. And so if the rewards come from producing the same work from the same popularized places, then there's really no reason to push yourself if that's where the likes come from. So um, I don't see that necessarily uh, changing anytime soon. <laughs> uh, um to, to, to go back to the original question, I don't, it's just recontextualizing uh, what Guy already expressed. But, you know, this, the, the, the concept of shoulders of giants standing on the shoulders of giants. So speaking only for myself, and in fact, while Guy was talking, I was thinking about U.S. history and how much, <laughs> how, how beneficial U.S. history has been to my life when I learned it as a kid. And realistically, not very much. Could I get by life without having any knowledge of U.S. history or world history? Absolutely. Does it make my life richer and better and more informed to know it? Absolutely. And so at least speaking for myself, um, understanding the history of photography and all of those persons that came before me gives me lots of inspiration and also tells me what I shouldn't be doing. Because I think it's fair to say the camera has been pointed at every conceivable thing, but the way you can aesthetically render things is always open to, to, to new approaches. And so as I studied history, I looked and said, I, I am not going to, I like this work, but I'm not going to copy it. So for me, it was more like, this is what I know not to do because it has been done. So at least in my context, I want to always push myself into a direction that I feel is uniquely mine. And so knowing what's already come out there has, uh, it, it, gives me the opportunity to not do it. Um, lastly, I wanted to add that Guy and I both have bookshelves full of photography books and artist books. And I think, you know, when you get far enough into your photographic career, the photographs or the images become less important than understanding why and how artists did their work. And both Guy and I think we find that uh, tremendously more inspirational than, than, a location it, it, to understand the brain of the maker provides a lot more insight than to knowing exactly where they stood. And that also informs my artistic process as well. So I, I certainly can't think of any reason why knowing photographic history could be bad. It could only be useful and informational. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I, I personally did, never really got into studying the history of photography until I was, um, interested in writing a book chapter and and I really wanted to understand that history of pictorialism and F64 so I picked up that uh, Ansel Adams biography from Mary Street Hollander and it was really just fascinating I feel like I barely have even opened the door to what is out there in terms of learning about that history and understanding it but I know for me personally it's definitely a value add for sure absolutely yeah, no. If, if you read, I mean, I'm sure you read it in the, in the Adams biography, but Adams credits his decision to become, he was originally trained to be a classical pianist. His decision to become a full-time photographer, he credits that to Paul Strand. Uh, 
not, not just to Paul Strand's work. All he saw, all that Paul Strand showed him, they met in some party in New Mexico. Paul Strand showed him his negatives, not even prints. And he was just floored. And he decided that that's what he wanted to do for a living. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I, I'm going to put this uh, as gently as I can. But I think <laughs> another part that photography, another problem that photography has, and I'm not discrediting Adams in any way, but we have a bit of an Ansel Adams problem, which is everybody knows Ansel Adams. Everybody thinks they know what pictures that look like Ansel Adams are, but there's been a lot happening in photography before Ansel Adams, a lot that happened after Ansel Adams, and there's just a, a general lack of, uh, of knowledge of a lot of that history and the contribution. And again, Ansel Adams was an incredible human being, an incredible photographer, deserving of every bit of the, the publicity and the popularity that he got. But uh, unfortunately, some of that eclipses other giants of photography. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, well, let's talk about what has transpired since Ansel Adams, because I think there's, you know, that's fairly recent history. And I think um, most people, to your point, Guy, probably haven't really been able to kind of discern many stepping stones between now and then. So what are some significant things that have occurred in the, in the craft or art form of landscape photography since Ansel Adams departed the stage? Well, in the craft area, obviously, digital photography was the biggest revolution, and Ansel Adams actually saw the beginning of it. In, in his books, he actually says that he predicted that the future of photography will be, I think he called it the electronic image. So he knew that this was coming. Uh, but what we're seeing uh, is more of the infiltration of, uh, I'm talking specifically about photography as art, you know, photography as a means, you know, for, for journalism and other things. Uh, those are important and uses for photography, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. But like I said, if you look at the progression of art, let's say if you look at a realist painting from, you know, the, the late 1800s and put that next to an impressionist painting from, I don't know, 1890 something, they would look completely different. You would know for sure this is an impressionist painting and this is a realist painting. You know, you look at a Courbet painting and a Monet painting and they look completely different. But that distinction has kind of fizzled out over the years. So it used to be that art movements were about very, uh, had very stylish definition. So this is what an impressionist painting looks like. But you can't say what a postmodern painting looks like because it can look a million different ways. Because the transition was from skill and technique and appearance and style in the older art movements to more of a, an idea in the newer art movements. Art movements are more about what is the art intended to accomplish? What is it intended to express? What kind of effect it's intended to have? And the mechanics of it become less important. And we're definitely seeing that in photography today. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about the mechanics of photography, but if you look at photography that makes it into museums, uh, I would say most of it is not realistic. I would say that a lot of photography, even that's presented as realistic, is not realistic. Uh, so I think that that's really the main transition is, uh, and, and this is the same evolution that we're seeing in other forms of art, like I said, photography is kind of lagging, is that it becomes more about, uh, at least in the art realm, about personal expression uh, than about adherence to stylistic or technical uh, uh, rules or so-called rules. So I think that that's primarily the, the main trend. And I, I think that that trend's gonna continue. I mean, I know some people are not comfortable with it, but you can't put the, the genie back in the bottle. That, that's the direction that art is going. So we're seeing more abstraction, we're seeing more expression in photography. Uh, and ultimately I think it's a good thing. And uh, you know, there's no master plan for the future of art, so who knows where it's gonna go next. Uh, 
but I think that that was really the, the big thing is that more people are getting into it, more people are discovering new ways to express themselves photographically, which are departing from the original sensibilities of photography. Uh, and I think overall, I mean, a lot of it may not resonate, but the, the things that do uh, advance, advance photography as a medium for art, as a, as a medium. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael? I think, I think it's also worth... Um noting that there's the art as interpreted by the maker and art as interpreted by the audience. And since all of these words and definitions are complete uh, inventions of our own, I think it's worth noting that art is whatever you want it to be. And your viewers are going to have a very different interpretation of it, perhaps. Um, um, but if you determine that you're making art, then it's art. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, some people think that other people need to be uh, the, the, the decider of that. But uh, I think the artist gets to make that distinction. Yeah, I think one of the debates that I always mire myself in online is, you know, around straight photography versus digital manipulation and all that kind of fun stuff. And one of the things that I always butt up against when I have these conversations with people is it seems like there's this... Um, belief out there that if you're making straight photography that doesn't have manipulation or whatever a digital art artistry that's applied to it that it can't be art and I just I feel like those things those two things can exist at the same time like you can have straight photography that's art and you can have our photography that uses digital manipulation that's also art and they're both art <laughs> and I, I don't I don't like it when people say that one is better than the other. I think they're, they're both perfectly valid forms of expression. Yeah, Matt, I think it's worth drawing a distinction, though, between straight photography and realistic photography. Mm. Straight photography is not intended, necessarily intended to be realistic. If you read some of the original writings about straight photography, what they were about is about using photographic methods and tools. So you can manipulate a photograph any way you want. As long as you're using photographic chemistry and optics, then it was still a straight photograph. Uh, realistic photographs means they have to look like a random person would have seen it if they were standing next to you. And that's not necessarily the same as straight photography. Straight photography can be manipulated, uh, at For least sure. according to the original definition. Do you, do you feel that, um, quote unquote, realistic uh, landscape photography can still be considered art? Uh, well, I, I would refer you to Susan Sontag's book because she, she, you know, she wrote a book called On Photography, and which is really a very scathing criticism of photography. She hated uh, her partner was a photographer, so maybe that had something to do with it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, she said sometimes, you know, photographs that were never intended to be art years later become considered as art uh, because they become so popular and so poignant and so part of the the culture and the zeitgeist that they become regarded as art. Uh, but art in the strict the sense is is a product of creativity and skill, human creativity and skill. In other words, it's specifically not a record of something that just occurred randomly and naturally. Uh, yeah, art from the same Latin word, uh, the same root as is artifact, uh, artificial. Uh, so yeah, I think for some photographers that that's an issue. But when you think about it, the greatest tool that we have for creative artistic expression in photography is not manipulation; it's composition. Mm -hmm. It's how we compose things, how we juxtapose things, what we choose to include, what we choose to include, how we arrange things relative to other things. Those things are all purely photographic, purely straight, 
could be considered purely realistic. But the most expressive power in photography comes from how you arrange things in the frame. Uh, yeah, the, the processing and manipulation later, you can do a lot of other things, of course, but the primary tool is that arrangement, that composition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's 100%. <laughs> awesome. I'd like to uh, quote yeah. the uh, Merriam-Webster definition for art, which is the conscious use of skill and creative imagination, especially in the production of aesthetic objects. So for me, the creative imagination part is the sticking point because I can go to any medium and any genre and stumble on creative imagination. And I don't know why, but while we were talking, uh, the artist Chuck Close popped into my head. Uh, Chuck Close produces portraits. He's blind. He produces portraits that are immensely sized. They're head-on portraits for the most part. There's nothing creatively imaginative about those portraits to me. But the museums have defined them as art because they have some good selling value and they have good investment value for the media, for, the, for those, those pieces. I don't see his work as art as much as other landscape photography I see. So these definitions are all very cloudy to me. But for me, the sticking point is creative imagination, which I can oh. believe is missing from a lot of contemporary landscape photography and from a lot of things that we've historically called art. As you might know, Chuck Close is a major critic of photography. He doesn't consider photography to be very artistic. But in your definition, Michael, I want to touch on something else since we talked about potentially where photography is, is going. In the definition, there is the word conscious. And now we see a lot of photographic-like work that's created by artificial intelligence by machines, which I would say, at least for now, we don't consider conscious. So by definition, any product of artificial intelligence is not art. Yeah, that's a that's a somewhat scathing uh, rebuke of some of the artificial intelligence software uh, things that have come out in the recent past in terms of Luminar and Photoshop sky replacement things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, well, I think what we're going to see is you know uh, there's a lot of tension between scientists and philosophers. You know, scientists like to deal with with facts and things that are measurable, and philosophers like to throw in monkey wrenches. I think we're going to see a similar thing in between art and philosophy. It's like okay, if we if we decide that art is a product of conscious beings, then what? Are we going to start treating computers as conscious beings? Uh, if not, do we change the definition of art to not include consciousness? Then what does that mean about art? So I think there's a very, very big philosophical uh, hurdle to, to cross here. Right, I'm sorry, man. I was just going to suggest that the dictionary makers meet every year and it's just easiest to change the definition because we, we just add new words and change definitions. It's easier. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or it's, um, we'll, we'll have people making distinctions like Mm, primarily human-derived creative works of art or something no, like that. No. <laughs> well, I'm curious, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is in terms of reflecting on ourselves as modern landscape photographers, and obviously, the, hopefully the listeners are not from the past or the future, although that would be really cool. For us reflecting on this, what is the importance or perhaps lack thereof for us as modern photographers to try to remain true to the fidelity of the historical pioneers of our craft? Uh, I guess that means, are you talking about fidelity to, to the people, to their styles, to their philosophy? That There's a lot of different ways to, to unpack that. But uh, for me, uh, the most important part of 
understanding the history is the evolution of ideas you know people people get their dues while they're alive some people get them for you know so some years after they're gone but ultimately it all gets erased anyway I, you know the, the the largest empire that ever was was the mongol empire can you name the top poets in the mongol empire <laughs> no, probably <I> not <laughs> if it, yeah come back in a hundred years and people might not even know who Ansel Adams was so you know it's it's all uh, to me it's just a, a distraction it's not something to aspire to the, the usefulness comes from the ideas uh, certainly certain people deserve the respect of their peers their contemporaries maybe some people to come after them and get inspired by it but ultimately the identities of the people is not all that important uh, in the long term, but their ideas and how they evolve into new things to me is, is the fascinating part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I was talking with a friend of mine about this earlier this weekend. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about myself personally is I always try to make things harder than they need to be just because I like the challenge. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, trying to not use sky replacements and things like that in order to, create a good photograph. And I, and I think for me, the kind of looking back at what people before me were constrained by is something that I kind of like because it's, it's like if that's someone, someone that I appreciate, uh, then I want to also try to maybe limit myself to the same limitations that they had creatively. And I know that maybe sounds like a stupid idea, but for me, it's a part of the challenge of creating a personally expressive image. I like having more constraints because I, for some reason in the end product, I feel more proud of it. Uh, well, yeah. No, well, now you're touching on the other aspect of it, which is the, the psychology of, of creative art. You know, if I spend an hour meticulously processing my image every pixel while listening to jazz and sipping bourbon, at the end of that hour, I feel like a million dollars, you know, <laughs> I'm getting into my flow state. I feel amazing. If I just hit a button to replace Sky and I got a great image and I put it on social media, I don't get that experience. So why would I want to do that? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's, that's something that I personally kind of experienced is like, oh, this this photo looks better than most of my other photos, but I don't feel the same way about it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it's about where, you know, how, how do you value a photograph? Is it by the impact it has on the viewer? Yeah, that would be one way to value it, but also by how much it enriches your own experience as a creative artist. And those shortcuts, you know, Edward Weston said, there are no shortcuts in photography. Those shortcuts don't just cut short the time it takes to make a good photograph. They also cut short your experience, your creative experience. Uh, so there's a, a huge downside to it. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, is there anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think I covered that pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to touch a little bit more on this this idea about landscape photography as an art form because I know, at least from my limited knowledge of, you know, Group F64, I think one of the main reasons why they were rebelling against pictorialism is because they didn't want photography to um, have the same properties as other art forms like they, like painting or things like that so how important is it that photography at least the the craft side of photography uh be limited in terms of um the techniques that are used to create the the product in terms of in terms of how people view it as art or maybe it's not important at all <laughs> 
I don't, I don't personally think it is, Matt. Um, um, and depending on where the conversation goes based on some of your preemptive questions, there's an artist I'll, I'll bring up later that I think she's taking it at, at things a different direction using mainly on the craft end, but uh, I don't think it's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. well, I, uh, yeah, the, the way, you know, Michael knows this, we tell people in our workshop, there is one correct answer to every question in photography. And that answer is it depends. Uh, <laughs> so it kind of depends on whose perspective. See, for me to create art is the primary reason for me to create art is about my own experience, right? So I do not want to hinder my own experience just to make something more popular or more appealing. So I have to find that balance where I make things that are worthwhile for me to make and that other people will also find worthwhile so they can appreciate and get something out of it and hopefully help me pay my bills. But, uh, yeah, so, so ultimately, you know, it really depends on the perspective that you take from the perspective of popularity. Yeah, there's, you know, you can think of a, a Justin Bieber song is probably more popular than a, a Mozart symphony, right? But that, that has no uh, correlation with artistic merit necessarily. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it depends on how you value photographs, the photographic experience, the creative experience, the experience of expressing yourself artistically, and whether that part of it is important to you. Mm -hmm. And I think the how you uh, create is probably less important, or at least it should be less important to you personally, as long as you feel like you're being satisfied through that process and, and what you create. Because I, I constantly see people get really offended when they get into, you know, arguments about the how they created something. And to me, it's like, why do you care what other people think? If you like it, then just like it. Who cares? Uh, right. And I think a lot of it also comes from uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's this whole industry of tips and tricks and shortcuts and presets. And uh, at the end, what happens is everybody picks their few tools that they like, you know, to apply it to push of a button. And none of these people are ever satisfied with their photographs. The, the, the flip side of that is if you teach people to visualize effectively, which is a very difficult skill, if you teach people to see in their mind's eye what you want your end result to be, I bet you with three tools in Photoshop, you can get 99% of that without needing any of that. Uh, so I think the problem is that we kind of train people to tell oh, you have to take classes, you have to buy all these products, you know, in order to be a quote unquote good photographer in order to make quote unquote epic photographs. Uh, but really, if you are a good visualizer, if you can take what you see, what's coming in through your visual system and process it creatively in your brain and make something of it and have something in your mind that you want to realize, the tools that are needed to get from point A to point B are actually not very complicated. Mm -hmm. No, I don't disagree with that at all. <laughs> in fact, I, I think, think the longer I do photography, the less I use Photoshop. <laughs> I think it's also worth noting that there's uh, a lot of uh, analog silver-based photographers out there who might listen to this discussion altogether and believe that because we're talking about pixels maybe or digital cameras that altogether it's not art that it has to or that it has to derive from silver grains in the largest format possible and you know guy and i used to teach large format photography workshops and there's still uh uh, sticking point for a lot of photographers they they put too much emphasis in the craft they'd rather get out a calculator and 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 calculate bellows extension rather than using a quick app which will do the exact same thing or some paper calculator they'd like to make it more difficult under the premise that it becomes more artistic but for me it's the experience and the end result it has little to do with the process mm -hmm. but to each his own indeed 
Maybe that's a good uh, segue into talking about that distinction between craft and artistry, because um, before we were recording, I was saying how I often kind of blur those two things just in kind of my own personal definitions. But I think to your point, it's probably worth having a conversation about what the distinctions are between the craft and the art, um, especially in, in light of historical frameworks, I suppose. Okay. To so, me, the, the distinction is, is, creativity i mean yeah you can if you can be a, an expert expert craftsperson you can produce incredibly beautiful incredibly useful incredibly difficult to make things incredibly popular things but in order for it to be art it has to have a creative uh aspect to it at least it's the way i see it it needs to have something that is original to you something that is out of your own mind something that has not been done before not do, being done by others uh so yeah for me that's where the distinction is that the craft you know yeah you can be an extremely uh, good craftsperson you can be a master printer you can be a master image processor you can be a master at all those things creativity you can't master creativity is an endless field um, so for me there is no such thing as being a, a master artist you can be a master at the craft I don't think you can be a master at creative expression that, that's just an endless way for you to express yourself what guy said and uh, and I'll, I'll name her now I I, I I mentioned her uh, 10 minutes ago, five, 10 minutes ago. I, I discovered a, um, I guess I could call her a photographer, a photographic artist a couple of months ago. Her name is Vanessa Marsh, conventional spelling of Vanessa, M-A-R-S-H. And she's combining craft, creativity, and imagination to produce pieces of art. You don't have to like her work. I like her work. Um, and it's purely derived from imagination and creativity and craft. Uh, she basically does photograms. She doesn't even use a camera. So all of her work is done in the dark room with drawings and pre-existing negatives and so forth. But the, the actual finished product is done via a photogram uh, under an enlarger. So she's combined all of those things seamlessly. And I really like the work she's, she's producing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I know I personally struggle with, and I'm sure a lot of other landscape photographers have struggled with as well is, is kind of, how do you know that what you're creating is art, right? Cause I remember the first time when I showed somebody a photograph of mine and they were like, that's art. And I was like, what? No, it's just a picture I took, you know? And I, I like, even personally was like trying to fight against that label. So like, how do we know that we, what we're doing is actually uh, art or that we're creating something? Well, because the definitions for art are so loose, then it's pretty much up to you to, to make the call. I mean, you, you got books about the, the art of war, you know, is war an art? Uh, you know, you have books about calligraphy, you have books. I think really the, the point is that some people confuse, just like you said, uh, art and craft. A lot of people also confuse art and aesthetics. If it's pretty, then it's art. Uh, and that's a valid definition. That's probably a definition for art. But I think in the context of what we're talking about, of creative and expressive art, then these are the dimensions that you should sh shoot for, the creativity and the expression. Creativity means originality, uh, and expression means that there is something more in the work than just a rendition of, of objective appearances that other people would have seen even if you weren't there. Uh, so for me, the, those are the, the differences. Is if you're creative, if you're producing things that are original, not been done before, and uh, some of the recent definitions of creativity also include non-obvious. In other words, let's say that I go out in the middle of nowhere and I photograph a beautiful scene nobody's ever photographed before. I have a spectacular photograph. Uh, 
if anybody else standing right next to me in the same circumstances would have said, obviously, this is the photograph, it's not a creative photograph, even though it's original and never been done before. So yeah, it might not be great art, but at least it's epic. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so for me, it's, uh, it's the creativity and the expression that, that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. So these are uh, distinctions within my own head, but I can tell you anytime I um, am driving and I see something out the car and I decide it's time to stop and get the camera out and make a photograph of it, I don't think I've ever called one of those photographs a piece of art. I think uh, capture is a fair word or whatever other phrases you want to use, but when I'm on a long, quiet wilderness walk by myself having an experience and I use creative imagination to deliberately compose elements within the frame that feels right, and then I gain a, a beautiful finished product from it, that is a piece of art to me. And there's no question about that, because there's a whole bunch of factors that went into that. But when it, for some reason, when it's too easy, when it's next to the car, when there's not much creative imagination involved, it's hard for me to ever call it art. And of course, we don't know that observing somebody else's art, you only know that yourself as the maker. But for me, I have very clear distinctions between what I call art of my own work and what is just captures or photographs or snapshots. There's a clear distinction between them for me. Hmm. Yeah, and, and going back to, to the word art, the, the very reason that word was coined was specifically to distinguish things that are manufactured by people from things that occur naturally and randomly. That makes sense. So I'm curious for each of you, how has uh, the history of landscape photography influenced you at all? In what, in what ways? Uh, well, for me, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today without it, because for me, that's A, my source of great inspiration. It's what I teach. It's what I write about. It's what I very much enjoy learning and deepening my knowledge in. And it's it's the wellspring of, of, of my own creative ideas is knowing what's been done before, knowing how people thought about things before, what parts of it I agree with, what parts I disagree with. So for me, it's just an integral part of of me being an artist, a photographic artist, is I have to know those things. Without those things, I wouldn't be able to do what I do, at least not the way that I do it. Mm-hmm. For uh, any musicians uh, listening, I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks can probably uh, analog- analogize this maybe perhaps better to music. You know, you can... Uh, it's easy to trace music history and sa- see how blues gave rise to jazz and to rock and roll and to so forth. It's so much harder to uh, to see that in photographic history. But when you study it, you then get to see the layers upon layers of influence that proceed through the generations of photographers. Um, and I still see that today. I can look at look at work online and I can see a chain of influence or maybe just the very last influence they had, but there are no creative works that exist inside of a hundred percent creatively unique bubble that as Guy mentioned earlier, we just have a rich history of art and artists that we're influenced by subconsciously or not. It's coming through the work. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, idea too, because I think oftentimes I don't know if you're familiar with Cole Thompson and, and, you know, his photographic celibacy idea. And I, he kind of prides himself on not looking at other people's work on purpose, which I think that approach does have some merit, but I'm wondering how does that approach kind of tie into this idea of studying the history? 
and maybe he has studied some of the history, but it seems to me like he probably does have some form of subconscious influence on his work, whether he wants to say it or not. Don't kill me, Cole. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that last sentence is, is it. And, and I think if you read his writing, he talks about for a long time trying to imitate Ansel Adams. So obviously he has seen a lot of photography, whether he stopped at some point, uh, you can't just erase that from your mind. Uh, yeah, but for me, that's, that's just an approach that, that doesn't work, just doesn't make sense for the way that I work. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, it certainly I, I, isn't I, for everyone. <laughs> I think it's a shame too to potentially dismiss the opportunity to sit with a cup of coffee and a great monograph and leaf through it. And I like to do that on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, you know, I, I guess it's both uh, maybe Nancy Reagan and the Nike phrase mixed together. It's real easy. Just don't do it. You just don't have to copy the work. Mm -hmm. It's a really easy decision to make. I can be influenced and inspired by lots of photographers. I don't have to copy it. Inspiration, not imitation. That's really easy to execute. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I personally only follow that particular mindset when I'm traveling to some place I've never been before, just in terms of not wanting to replicate someone else's composition, because if it's stuck in my mind, then, then I'm like trying to find it, you know? I, but yeah, I would too. Say if it's stuck in your mind, then you know exactly what not to do. So yeah. easier <laughs> to not repeat it. <laughs> yes, this is, this is true. This is true. I guess you could, you could go both ways. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, we have a bunch of uh, listener questions. Uh, that I'd love to try to tackle. And uh, the first one is uh, from TJ Thorne, whose work I really appreciate. And uh, his question is, how do you feel about the digital age in that when we die, most of our photos will be lost to encrypted hard drives? Is this something that you've thought about? And what steps have you taken to pass on your creative work to future generations? Uh, I, I'm going to quote uh, Brooks Jensen here. He's the the publisher of Lenswork magazine, where he, he said that the, the primary or the best, I forgot what, what term he used, uh, medium for photography is books. Uh, leave books, you know, and then it doesn't matter what medium it's in, as long as the book survives, your work survives. Uh, you know, prints, uh, not a lot of people buy prints. A lot of people buy prints and then stash them away as investments or, you know, in private residences where very few people see them. But books, once they're out there, you know, they get digitized. The publishers keep them going for a long time. So, yeah, for me, published books is the best way to pass not just your work, but your philosophy and your thoughts along. So I would say, yeah, not not print, not online books, even ebooks, assuming that there's a, a some some institution behind them that's that would keep updating them to newer technology. But yeah, for me, publishing books is is probably the best way to avoid obsolescence. I think that's good. Michael. Uh, uh, TJ had some great questions. I wanted to ask him if he knew about cryogenics, because I personally don't <laughs> plan to die. Um, no, just yeah, um, I, I, uh, Guy and I talked about this earlier. I'm a big promoter of prints because I'm old school and started with film. And so I have flat files full of prints that now my wife has instructions what to do when I move on to another sphere. Um, but um, um, I think print, you know, as Guy said, books too, but not everybody has the uh, opportunity or ability to produce books. Of course, there is self-publishing, print on demand, so forth, but uh, prints are really easy to make today. 
And it's really easy to sock away flat files full of prints that are signed, additioned, whatever you want. Because the one thing we know for sure is that our best uh, value is going to come after our death. So whatever it is, whether it's a book or a print, it's going to be worth more later. So make sure you have those instructions attached to it. Um, to that end, but Guy and I are both prolific printers. Um, um, for us, the 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 photograph a photograph doesn't exist until it's actually printed because that's just the traditional form, right? We were looking at negatives or transparencies. You had to make a print to actually have a photograph. So for me, that still is the the way to do it. So I I print as many things as I can, all the things I love. I I pack them into bags with certificates, and they get locked away. Huh. Uh, I, I want to add a, a caveat here regarding prints because I, I actually agree with a lot of what Michael says. Uh, I wrote a, a piece for Lenswork about that once about the, the physicality of, of, uh, of artifacts that we create. And part of it is not so much how long they're going to last, but also the, the psychological experience, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to the Louvre. I mean, I've seen reproductions of the Mona Lisa that look a million times better than you could see behind that thick glass in the Louvre. But when you stand there in front of that thing and you think to yourself, the hands of Leonardo touched that thing. It's a it's a it's a very reverent feeling. It's completely different. And it's the same for me. You know, I look at that print by Edward Weston. I know he did this, he made this, he held this piece of paper in his hand. That piece of film that you see or used to see at Galen Rouse Gallery, that was with him on the summit of a Himalayan peak. Uh, so for me, that essence of you know that this this there's some continuity of experience with the artist that you know it might not be easily quantifiable, but for me that's that's the real value of print is you buy a print from the photographer from the artist and that's something that they made something that they put their name on something that they said yes this is what i want you to see uh for me that's important just a, a quick add-on to that anybody who's been to an ansel adams exhibit um or the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite Valley, there's two, two different kinds of Ansel prints. The ones that are made today by Alan Ross that are uh, referred to as special edition prints, and then there's all the prints made in the past by Ansel. And those are two worlds apart prints. Uh, the Alan Ross prints have, it's, it's Ansel's negative, but they have none of the magic of Ansel's original prints because he handled that piece of paper. He developed it. That makes it very different. Actually, since we're talking about the history of photography, there's an interesting uh, story about that. Uh, the, the biggest exhibit of photography that ever was was called uh, The Family of Man. It was put together by uh, Edward Steichen, who was an incredible, one of the giants of photography and, and art in general. Uh, and he, he wanted, and he did, create the, the largest photography exhibit ever. And that also ended up ending his relationship with Ansel Adams because Steichen insisted that Adams wouldn't make the prints. He had a certain idea in mind of where that print needs to go in the exhibit, how big it needs to be, and he wanted the negative so he could give it to whoever to make a print that would fit exactly the exhibit, and Ansel was not happy with the way it turned out, uh, and they had a, a big falling out over that. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's a good uh, opportunity to ask one of Jack Jackson Frischman's question around physicality, since you had brought it up, Guy, um, and his question is... Um, he says, I've been thinking a lot about physicality in our art, and I'd be very curious if they, as in you guys, <laughs> have 
thoughts on how the diminishment of the role of physical things, such as paper, chemicals, and apparatus in the art form has changed artistic visions? Uh, I would say it's definitely changed, but to quantify that exactly how it changed would be difficult. Like I said, first of all, there's that essentialism, right? To know that that person that you revere as an artist has actually touched something that you're now holding in your hand or looking at to me that that creates a certain psychological effect. Uh, but it, it doesn't just stop with that. I mean, think of equipment, for example. I'm sure there's probably some people listening who have worked with, you know, old Leica cameras or some of the old manual Nikons and Canons that were just machined to perfection and everything was smooth and everything clicked perfectly. To me, that was such a satisfying part of the experience is to just click every Everything just right to you know set all the geared motions on my view camera you know I, I used to, I used metal field camera not wood because I like that smoothness of it so it helped me get into that mindset of you know I'm doing something creative I'm doing something important I'm doing something meaningful uh, and Galen Rowell in one of his articles he said cause he, he got a lot of criticism because he used 35 millimeter uh, because it was a better fit for the way he worked he just liked to run around and climb <laughs> everything and you know hauling a heavy camera just wasn't part of it uh, so in one of his article, he said, you know, one of the ways that I maintain that artistic mindset is I pretend that my little camera is a big camera. So he treats it with the same reverence and he sets everything, he dials it exactly right. And uh, for him, he just, he wanted to erase the difference of it. it's not a point and shoot. It's not just something that I point at something and push the button. It's a creative tool. Uh, and yeah, in the past, the tools used to enforce that on you, right? You had to have a big heavy tripod to set the camera on, to dial everything, to put the magnifier glass on the ground glass. Uh, and that was part of the process. And today you don't have to do it, but you can still maintain that state of mind where it's like, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm going to look at every pixel on the screen. I'm going enlarge and make sure everything is in the right focus i'm going to think i'm going to compose you know everything that has to do with the creative experience even though the camera allows me to have shortcuts i'm deliberately not going to take them yeah that makes a lot of sense anything not from you michael yeah um you know all things change right we don't have uh drafting tables anymore we don't use pencils and protractors like we used to photography changes but anybody who has worked in the traditional darkroom it's easy to lament the loss of the physical thing watching a print come you know a latent print come alive in a tray is a pretty magical thing and i think it's fair to say that inkjet does not rival that magic but the end result is still the same. The inputs are the same, the process changes, things change. That's just how it is. Um, I do think the second half of Jackson's question is very good too, and I wonder if you'll, you'll get to that. I, I will. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully I get the right part of it, so we can dive right into that. You know, historically, landscape photography has played a role in, in conservation. Um, what Jackson's asking is, uh, do you think that landscape photography can still play its historical role in conservation or whether the ubiquity of nat nature imagery has robbed it of its power? Uh, I would say there's a third item on that list that photographers are probably not going to like, and that is that photographers have become a factor in destroying natural places uh, in a lot of places. And I know people don't like to hear it. There's always been this thing, well, people go out and going out to nature is a good thing it's not always a good thing for nature. Uh, and so that's another, for me, another one of those benefits of being creative, of working in an environment that you're familiar with, you know, and reducing your own impact on natural places. So uh, for me, that's, that's a problem that I see every day in the places that I photograph. Um, 
Yeah, but as far as the role of conservation, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to be very unpopular here, but uh, I, I think that all the evidence shows that conservation is a, is a losing battle. You know, we're, we're delaying the inevitable, but there is huge value in delaying the inevitable for as long as possible. Uh, and for that, I think photography can play a role. But if you're going out to some sensitive places and then you put the GPS coordinates online and create a YouTube video for how you drove there and where you stood, you're doing the exact opposite. You're actually harming that place in a large proportion of the cases. Which I think is um, an incredibly difficult thing to grapple with internally, especially if you derive your income as a landscape photographer from the craft of it and from doing it, because oftentimes that's how a lot of people make money is by doing workshops and taking people to these places or doing YouTube videos or things of that nature. So I think it is a, it is a very difficult uh, balance uh, to try to keep. Uh, I don't yeah, know next time. <laughs> I'll tell you from personal experience, somebody recently told me that my work really reminded him of the work of another photographer that he admired. And I went and saw the work of that other photographer and it's all copies of stuff that I've done 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's a downside to, to this, uh, this uh, mentality of social media celebrity. Uh, yeah. And you know, it, if you think about other forms of art and other forms of art, plagiarism is a dirty word in photography. It's almost encouraged people win awards for contests for plagiarizing. Yeah, definitely. What do you yeah. think, Michael? Yeah, I, I wanted to just kind of like recenter that question. Um, so I, I think what Jackson is asking. So um, you know, historically, conservation photographers, star, conservation photography started in the early '70s or so. Guy, correct me if I'm wrong. With the Sierra Club coffee table books, were those books? Uh, actually, I'm sorry, late 60s uh, started with the monuments in Utah. Um, those books were intended to be put in front of people so that they would be spurred to action to help um, stop the, the potential destruction of certain places. Um, um, I don't remember how long that, that, uh, that series went. It was about 10 or 15 years worth of books that they published. Um, and then here we are today, and it's fair to say that uh, all of those uh, coffee table books, those Sierra Club coffee table books, which were intended to slow down the development of things or halt the development things, it's fair to say they were ineffective, they failed. If we look at photography today, I don't know how long the International League of Conservation Photographers has been around. I know they achieve very specific small goals, but the pace of destruction around the planet continues on unabated. Uh, Edward Bertinsky is a really awesome Canadian photographer. His name may have come up on your program before. You may be familiar with his work. He does beautiful work and his, all of his work is strictly related to the destruction that we are doing around the planet with the whole premise of it should cause people to think and to slow down and to act is it working? I don't think so. So I think that um, the ubiquity of nature imagery and billions of photographers has much less to do with it than what the human, what humans are after. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not preservation of the planet. So I don't think that even if, if, if 
every photographer tomorrow flipped to becoming a conservation photographer, it's not going to stem the tide of what humans are doing around the world. So I don't know um, that there is a lot of value in conservation photography like that. And I can tell you specifically, so to about 12 years ago now, I did my first uh, conservation projects for uh, U.S. organizations and the, with the specific intent to try and slow down desert solar. This is when desert solar projects started to roll out, you know, specifically in California and Nevada. Um, it hasn't slowed down. And uh, we protected some projects. I had some very proud big wins, or I should say the organizations did, and my photographs helped with that, but it is not stopping the tide. Um, so I, I'm afraid that photography doesn't have that power. It's not powerful enough. It doesn't compete with dollars. For those of you that are listening that haven't seen uh, David Attenborough's uh, recent recent film, I think it's called A Life on Our Planet. So good. The, the, opening, the opening scene for that is he talks about just how much the world changed in his lifetime. And I'm thinking in my lifetime, more than half the wildlife has been gone, more than half the wilderness has been gone just in the time that I've been alive. Uh, and, the, and the rate of it is only increasing. And again, that has little to do with photography and maybe photography can help support conservation effort. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's, let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot more we can do to, to help the planet than, uh, than photography. Yeah, I was going to say, I have a fairly unpopular opinion as well. And I think a lot of it for me, it's, you know, it's consumption and consumerism, which is all driven by corporate profit because corporations are driven by, you know, the need to keep growing year after year. And in order to do that, they have to market their products to us to sell more of them to us. And by making us psychologically feel bad about ourselves because we want this thing that's going to make us feel better. I actually just watched the um, minimalism um, they're the minimalists uh, documentary last night, which kind of just reaffirmed that for me as well. It's just, you know, consumerism and consumption is really what's driving a lot of this, and unfortunately. And I think, you know, we're sitting here on our computers and I have an iPhone. I mean, we all play into this, right? <laughs> well, as, as you might know, Matt, I've, I've refused and I will continue to refuse accepting corporate sponsorships for my work. For me, that's just, that doesn't align with my philosophy regarding why I do what I do. Uh, and yeah, I've actually recently upgraded my phone, my from an iPhone 5. So I try to hold on to things until they just don't do what I need them to do. Same thing with cameras, same things with lenses. I buy refurbished, I buy used. Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell anybody they need to buy things they don't really need. Matt, um, may, maybe uh, to, 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 to cap this question, um, you know, Guy and I both do our work within several hundred miles of home. We're not globetrotters. Um, we have a very specific niche we work in. Maybe this is an opportunity for photographers who are listening to think about their work and think about their motives and what they do and how that, uh, how that affects conservation more so than way more so than the photographs they're going to produce because that's not going to make a difference but personal choices make a much bigger difference in mm -hmm. what we're doing to the planet i agree all right well let's move on to the next uh question um it comes from uh anna morgan uh she's a great she's an awesome photographer as well her question is how do you see aesthetics and representation, for example, women or other subgroups uh, being related historically 
and what can be done to reconcile and recognize this? I thought that was a really interesting question. Very loaded question. Um, (laughs) I I think, I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, History and and the present is still to a large degree has been extremely uh, misogynistic and extremely, extremely discriminating against some groups of people. And some people, you know, for due to their accidents of birth, uh, just don't have the same opportunities as other people. So yeah, like it or not, there is a huge, huge over-representation of men in photography, always has been. Uh, and I'm, I'm very glad to see that changing because obviously creativity and artistic expression are not limited by gender or uh, anything else. Uh, so yeah, but uh, there's a couple of things that might be worth mentioning. First of all, the very first book to ever feature photography was by a woman. Uh, she was she was this British botanist, uh, Anna Atkins. Uh, so she published a book with uh, cyanotypes of British algae, which if you look it up, they are gorgeous. They mm-hmm. are works of art the way that she created them. So there has been some very formidable accomplishments by women in photography. Uh, another unfortunate uh, part is that some amazing women photographers have become known because of their association with men photographers. So if you think about, uh, you know, Marguerite Mather, for example, who was the, the muse, the first muse for Edward Weston, she was an incredible photographer in her own right. She was his senior. She was much more experienced and much more creative than he was at the time that they met. And she was the one that kind of gave him the push. Uh, and, you know, Edward Weston has a long list of, of women photographers that he had various, uh, relationships with uh, Tina Modotti and others uh, who are, you know, in their own right, incredible photographers. But unfortunately, because of the, the circumstances, they ended up being known for their association uh, with him. So, uh, yeah, for sure, there is a lot of uh, unfair misrepresentation of uh, both women and minorities. And uh, I, I guess the first thing any of us can do is not contribute to that. Uh, and, uh, you know, recognize, recognize work for what it is, regardless of where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Michael? That's a challenging question for me, and it's not, um, you know, I don't really, um, hmm. I don't know how to answer that one, but uh, I'm, I'm looking at her, her question right now. Uh, to recognize, you know, I think this is the blog and podcast era, so maybe it's high time for uh, a woman's photographer venue to start to make, you know, to, to create some awareness about around uh, women photographers. Uh Guy and I now are, uh, I feel like we're averaging 40 to 50% female attendance in our workshops. Um, And I like the trend and I'd love to see a lot more women pursuing photography and not just as a hobby, but seriously as a creative act um, and keep pushing forward and and think about it as a primary um, creative endeavor and not just a thing they do on the weekends. but yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot of women uh, working in our workshops and in the field. So I don't think there's a shortage of them, but how they rise to the top, I'm, I'm really not sure. But uh, certainly there could be some podcasts or something like that to help bring some awareness to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know I've had some listeners write to me about this particular topic where they don't necessarily feel like there is discrimination against women in landscape photography. You know, I did a panel on all women a couple of months back and got some interesting feedback about that in terms of some people perceive it that it's, there is not discrimination. It's just that there's just not a lot of women doing landscape photography. I'm just quoting what people have told me, obviously, but um, I don't know if I disagree or agree with that or not. I just think it's 
the cause of it maybe is less important than just recognizing the fact that it exists and how do we promote it going forward is my, my okay. opinion. Yeah, I, I think that kind of falls into that same area of like racism where some people think racism don't exist. And I think there's, that's because there's implicit versions of it and explicit versions of it. Yeah, if you explicitly discriminate against somebody, you can say, well, yeah, you're a racist or misogynist. But there's a lot of implicit discrimination where people might not even know they're doing it. They just go along with the culture. They just go, I mean, at the end of the day, numbers don't lie. The statistics don't lie. You can see that there is discrimination and misrepresentation. So the question is not, you know, who to blame for it or it's what do we do about it? Perfect. Michael? I think, uh, Matt, I think you've had her on your program, uh, Colleen Minnick. Um, Colleen yes, does all women workshops, and Colleen is a big booster for women. So the ladies that are listening, go be with Colleen. Colleen's a huge inspiration. And Absolutely. she's a lot of fun. <laughs> and she, yeah. promotes, she promotes them, too. So yeah. yeah. And she's really good at writing haikus, by the way. <laughs> Um, okay, I got another listener question from uh, Saikat Chakraborty. I always mess his name up, but he's, a, he's one of our supporters, and I really like his photography as well. Uh, his question is, um, how much does racial history and background affect the development of an artist? And he says, I asked this is the sense that some choices are probably easier to make for some coming from a privileged background or race as compared to someone who necessarily had no exposure to the outdoors growing up or the idea that artistic uh, pursuit is always on the back burner owing to more mundane day-to-day -day substance. That was an uh, interesting well, question. was actually on our last workshop, so we know. Oh, cool. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he's right, obviously, and, and it comes down to, you know, there, there's some, some groups that just, you know, by complete accident, just don't have the same opportunities that others do to become artists. And that's always been the case. I mean, it used to be that the, the, the greatest distinction was between the poor and the rich, where the poor just had to work so hard all day long, couldn't afford material, so they just couldn't practice art. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the, 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 the space of mind to do that. Only the rich could. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, uh, the, that kind of discrimination based on race or gender or net worth, that, that's just part of the human psyche that we need to, to root out. Uh, but there's another part to that is that we're each a product of our experience, our collective experiences of where we come from, with our, yeah. our cultures, our beliefs, our, our you know, emotional makeup, our personality type. There's a lot of things that make a person. Uh, and there's been countless examples of people that just took those things and channeled them into their art. Uh, you know, so for some people, it's, it's about activism. For other people, it's about expression. Uh, and actually, that ties pretty well with the, the previous, with Anna's questions about, about women, because if you look at some of the greatest women photographers in history, some of them were activists. If you think about Dorothea Lange, if you think about uh, Consuelo Canaga, uh, you know, she, she deliberately photographed black people in San Francisco because she felt that they were misrepresented. She was a, she was a photojournalist. She was one of the first women photojournalists. Uh, so yes, some of these women actually, probably from personal experience, knowing discrimination, have decided to make it a cause and to channel that in artistic ways. Yeah, I was going to say, if my perspective as being a fairly boring white guy that grew up mostly middle class, you know, I don't have a lot of things that have ailed me throughout my 
existence. And I think in some ways, it's going to sound weird, but in some ways I'm kind of envious of people that have had some of those experiences because I think they have a lot greater potential to create more interesting art just based on what's fueled them throughout their life and the experiences that they've had. So I, to your point, Guy, I would say um, for people that have maybe experienced life in that way, I would channel that into your creative expression. Yeah, and actually another name just came to my head, uh, Laura Gilpin. I don't know if you heard about her. She photographed a lot of Native Americans. She photographed some landscapes too. She worked in the 1930s and later she was a master platinum photographer. Uh, she did amazing work. Awesome. Uh, Michael? I hope uh, Psychot will be okay with this since I think Guy answered his question pretty well. I'm, I'm reviewing his question as it pertains to my own personal history. And um, because I'm a boring white guy, I don't have any thoughts on racial history. Um, I'm, I, it's clear how people are affected or disaffected by their, by their race. But I actually think of this more in terms of physical geography. Because mm. um, I came from a family that was non-artistic. I'm the only person in my family that has ever, well, my brother was a photographer, a good photographer growing up, but then he completely abandoned it. He might've been my early inspiration, but I otherwise came from a non-artistic family. Um, but what I did have was easy access to the state of California. So my geographic access and clearly my whiteness and my privileged upbringing gave me better access to it. But somebody that's from the United Kingdom or from Europe who has no public lands available to them is at a much greater operating deficit than I am. I have public lands outside my back door practically. So for me, the opportunity to make art is immediate. For other people, they have to get on a plane or they have to spend some hours driving. So for me, I think physical geography is more important than personal background and racial history, but I haven't lived through that to know. Sure. That's fair. I was thinking about if I grew up in Omaha instead of Colorado, I probably would have a much different appreciation of the natural world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, awesome, man. This has been so much fun. I would love for you guys to talk a little bit, a guy, um, I know you're releasing or have already released a new edition of your book and would love for you to tell us a little bit about it because I know earlier you, earlier you had said that one of the best ways for us to keep our legacy alive is to put it into a book. So let, tell us a little bit about your book. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, let's do some shameless promotion. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so my book, uh, More Than a Rock, it's been out since uh, 2015, and uh, the, the first edition ran out in August, uh, and uh, the publisher, Rocky Nook, uh, contacted me to ask if I wanted to do a second edition, and I think originally they just wanted me to go over and update some pictures and uh, re republish it, but uh, there, there's always been things about the original edition that kind of bugged me, you know, some ideas that I've changed my mind about, some things that I didn't feel I phrased properly, and so I decided to go and do a much more in-depth edit and to make it worthwhile for people to, to buy a second edition. I also added four uh, new articles to it. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy with it. It's a hardback edition. I think it looks beautiful. And uh, yeah, I guess it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I guess for people that don't know what the book is about, it's a book of essays pretty much about my life as a photographer, how I approach my photography, how it ties in with my experiences in the wild landscape, my general philosophy of life. Uh, so yeah, it's not a how-to book. It's not a, not a coffee table book. It's just more of a, a personal book about how I live my life as a photographer. 
Wouldn't you say if you even remotely enjoyed any part of this conversation, then you probably would love the book. Absolutely. Actually, <laughs> you should each buy three copies. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Matt, if I can add on, um, yeah. uh, the guy, guy will do nothing for me as a result of my promotion here. So let that be known. But I just received the copy, his book yesterday. And it's a beautiful book. I have his first edition, of course, it's soft cover, the cover change, it's a beautiful hardcover. But you know, I don't think this is a surprise to your listeners. Guy is an artist through and through. And for anybody, you know, Guy and I, we share a lot of similar life experiences. So when I read Guy's book, I'm instantly transported to places and moments and experiences. So I can very much relate to that book. But, you know, for those who want to get into the artistic frame of mind and a non-technical process frame of mind, Guy's book is the book to reach for. There is no other book in the marketplace that I'm aware of that reaches like that. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, did you prefer PayPal or Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> well, right now I would say Bitcoin for sure, right? Uh, that's funny. Uh, Michael, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about your guys' uh, workshops that you lead? Yeah, why not? Uh, so if the world ever opens back up, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> so Guy and I uh, took the preemptive uh, measure of uh, reloading our schedule for the months and years ahead um, because we, in fact, uh, going back to Psychot's question, uh, he uh, his group we were actually shut down. We actually concluded our workshop the day we were basically kicked out of the park. So we oh, got wow. really lucky. Yeah, we were fortunate to, to actually pull the workshop off. We weren't even sure it was going to happen. Uh, but we ended up having to pull our February 21 workshop because we knew it was not going to happen. Um, so we've now reloaded the schedule. If you go to Visionary Photo Workshops, uh, we have opportunities, I think, through the end of 22, 2022. And I forgot to mention, when we were talking about printing earlier, um, you know, it's my personal lament that not enough photographers are printing their work to, today. And to that end, Guy and I have relaunched our visionary processing and printing workshops where uh, in the field, photographers can capture files, bring them to the classroom, we will develop them, and people will actually go home with exhibition-ready prints. So if anybody wants to learn how to print and take their image from raw file all the way to master print, that's the workshop to join us in. But yeah, we've got at least five, five workshops through the end of 2022, and some are already sold out. But we'd love to see you guys there. I love it. Well, this has been so much fun. I, and it's, this is the first time I've done this over video. And I got to say, it, it really does add a little bit of value, even though guys hiding behind <laughs> no camera. That's okay. I got to see no, actually, Michael's I, uh, face. I live in the middle of nowhere, so I have bandwidth uh, limitations. So that I figured. Audio, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figured it was a bandwidth issue. But, um, but this is, thank you, guys. This has been so much fun. And I know we've been chatting for like 400 hours. So I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join me for this special episode. It's been thank a really you very much, Matt. Matt, thank you very much. Congratulations on number 200. Oh, Absolutely. thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, I can't thank Guy and Michael enough for joining me for this very special episode. I also have to thank Guy for sending me a copy of, his, of the new edition of his book, More Than a Rock. I have gotten through a lot of it, and it is quite a captivating piece of writing worth investing your time and money in. 
Guy and his publisher, Rocky Nook, have graciously provided listeners of the podcast with a 35% discount on his book. Just use the code GUYTAL35 at checkout. I have it all laid out in the show notes as well. Well, I would be remiss not to thank the people that are supporting the podcast on Patreon. You are the fuel that keeps the fire burning. All of you are amazing. I'm especially thankful for our podcast producers who contribute over $20 a month to keep the show alive. Really, you should all be thanking them if you like the podcast, and there's a way to do that. A high tide raises all ships, so if and when you can, reach out and support these amazing folks. Some of these people have been supporting the podcast since the very beginning, and I'm honestly without words. Without further ado, thank you to these amazing individuals. Gary Randall, David Kingham, Eric Stensland, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Ken Dono, James Bakavoy, Anton Everine, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rung, John Whitaker, Jason Clardy, Joshua Wallace, Drew Armstrong, Jim Valencourt, Jennifer King, Craig Young, Adam Bulliard, Michael DeMiola, Chuck Mora, Jacob Buchowski, Jay Fritz Rumpf, Charlie Vandenbrock, Joss Panacook, and Anton Gorlin. I have links to all of these individuals' websites over on my website if you just go look for the podcast in the menu. And you can check out their website, their work, maybe, maybe find one of their workshops to join. Really, however you can support these people, please do so. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.